Hello and welcome to this week's Extended Hong Kong Heritage, where I look at the year 1972 and have a delve around the RTHK Library for sound from that era. Lots happened in 1972, both good and bad. An ocean liner went up in flames. And another great burst, a huge explosion. Just like a cannon shot and a mushroom of smoke has just belched out from the stern. Floods and landslides killed dozens. Over this vast sea of sand and mud and water and debris that at about half past one this afternoon descended upon this reside area. There was a terrorist attack on the Munich Olympics where the Hong Kong head of the Olympic Committee was concerned about getting the Hong Kong team members out. On the plus side, it was the opening of Hong Kong's first container terminal and also the one-mile-long cross-harbour tunnel. We should surely take heart from this achievement to believe that if this can be done, so too can many other things. The movie industry was thriving and Bruce Lee was conquering Hollywood with a film that he directed, starred in and wrote the script for. As we find out later, Hong Kong was having a few financial woes, but there was also a very successful anti-litter campaign with a funny green anti-hero, which is fondly remembered by the population today. There was plenty of music and 70s fashion, including the chopsticks, Danny Summer, Joe Jr., among many others. If you stay, I'll make you a day. Not So let's start by going back 50 years to a strange fire, or fires, that broke out on a cruise liner called CY's University, but formerly known as the Queen Elizabeth. If you look back at old black and white photos, she's really quite magnificent. I featured her on the programme before, and the fire, but then I recently came across some Radio Hong Kong sound of reporters at the scene in Victoria Harbour, when she caught fire. The Queen Elizabeth was the largest ocean liner in the world when she was launched in Scotland in 1938. The ship was used by the Cunard Line for transatlantic cruises between Britain and the United States. She was also used to transport a large number of soldiers in the Second World War. She was named after the wife of George VI, Queen Elizabeth, later to become Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother. Cunard would retire the Queen Elizabeth in 1969 and in July 1971 the Queen Elizabeth sailed to Hong Kong, bought by shipping magnate 
Tung Chao Yung and renamed CY's university. CY Tung was a big believer in education and the ship was to be used as a floating university. But it caught fire or was set alight during refurbishments on January the 9th, 1972. Here's then Radio Hong Kong's Warren Rook taking up the story. It was on a bright Sunday on January the 9th, just about midday, when fire broke out on the giant passenger liner Queen Elizabeth, anchored off Chingy Island and undergoing conversion into a floating university. The liner had been bought by Hong Kong shipping magnate C.Y. Tung for nearly $20 million and had been renamed the C.Y.'s University. The smoke now has changed colour somewhat. It now has taken on a rather evil yellowish-grey look. As we first arrived, it was fairly clean white smoke, but now, obviously, some oil... And another great burst, a huge explosion! Just like a cannon shot and a mushroom of smoke has just belched out from the stern, even above the sound of the helicopter, we heard that bang. The sheet of flame and a great smoke ring, 30, 40, 50 feet across, spiraling up into the sky here. The fire spread from stem to stern. Miraculously, there was no loss of life, despite the fact that some 250 men had been on board that afternoon. At exactly three minutes to 12 the next day, the Queen Elizabeth succumbed. We have the CYS University directly below us now, only a few hundred feet. The port side is sticking out, the vessel has capsized over onto its starboard side. The funnels are still sticking out of the water, but the angle of the lean is probably 60, 70 degrees. All the port side is paintless, it's been bent and buckled. The portholes, the metal plating that supports the uh, portholes on the port side of the upper cabins has collapsed over. All around the vessel for about 200 yards is a thick oil slick. Only one fire appliance is, is here now, flying two jets onto the stern section where very black smoke is still coming out of the portholes. The rest of the ship still has white smoke and what appears to be steam. Not very much, probably only 10 or 20 feet the vessel is sticking out of the water. A couple of lifeboats hanging perilously on the side. Quite a few small craft hanging around. Not much they could do now. For many people it was a sad event, especially for those in Hong Kong who had been associated in one way or another with the giant ship when she plied the Atlantic run. Marine officer David Hunt, who had witnessed the actual sinking, summed up the feelings of those who had tried to halt the fire. I think I can say this with a certain amount of sincerity being an ex-seafarer. It was uh, a rather sad sight to see her eventually capsize, although we'd all been prepared for this and knew it had to happen, or knew that she would be a total loss. Um, I think uh, I can genuinely say it was, a, it was a rather sad sight, actually. A Marine Court of Inquiry, headed by Justice A.M. McMullen, established that several fires had broken out on the Queen Elizabeth almost simultaneously, and the three members of the court agreed that the probable cause was sabotage. However, if anyone did deliberately light the fires on board on June the 9th, they were never discovered. The demise of the liner CY's University, formerly the Queen Elizabeth. Some parts of the ship still lie on the seabed in Victoria Harbour. January the 9th was a Sunday. The late veteran BBC correspondent Anthony Lawrence recounted to me how the BBC called him from London on the phone. And they asked him, can you give us a story on the Queen Elizabeth? And he was a bit taken aback and said, well, what about the Queen Elizabeth? And they said, it's on fire. And he looked out of his window over Victoria Harbour and said, so it is. 
Here's Warren with a bit more marine news. Good news on the marine front this year was the official opening of the number one berth at the multi-million dollar Kwai Chung container terminal. Berths two and three are well on their way to completion. 1972 proved to be a deadly year in Hong Kong, with around 160 people killed in floods and landslides. In mid-June, the observatory reported that there had been record rainfall. 40, 72 hours ending 2 p.m. yesterday, uh, we recorded a total of 631.9 millimetres, and this is the second highest on record uh, since record began in the Royal Observatory. Uh, this is only exceeded by the three-day period in May in 1889. And this amount, for a three-day period, is heavier than the three-day period when we had a June flood in 1966. On the 18th of June, the waterlogged colony was counting its dead. Altogether, 160 people died as a result of the rains. 67 of those when a 12-storey block of flats in Coatwell Road collapsed after being struck by a landslide. In Samao Ping in Kowloon, 71 people died when another landslide completely covered their flimsy huts in a recite area. Right below me now, you can, I'm sure, hear the engine of a vast, huge, earth-moving machine, which has in its jaws right now what is left of what was only a matter of hours ago, a smart, new saloon car. And there, it's been dropped to the ground, discarded like an old, broken toy, like so many other cars here, as I fought my way through the rubble to get up to my vantage point. I stepped past three completely smashed and broken cars, which more than anything else perhaps gave me some idea of just how bad this landslide must have been this afternoon. Because the extraordinary thing about it is, to look at this scene, you'd never believe that there had been a landslide. Over this vast sea of sand and mud and water and debris that at about half past one this afternoon descended upon this reside area, there's still a carpet of grass. It looks as though, in fact, it's always been here. It's difficult to believe that only 14, 15 hours or so ago, there were people living beneath this. The chief fire officer in Kowloon, Bob Holmes, was one of the officers in charge of rescue operations. Heavy equipment was standing by but could not be used because there might still be survivors. The landslide came first, and several minutes after that, the fire alarm came because the landslide overturned uh, some lorries and one of these lorries had I think it was kerosene that was in it and that went in fire before we knew it with a third alarm attendance and a landslide at the same time uh, unfortunately the appliances uh, supporting appliances the initial appliances got through from Kuntong all right the supporting appliances from Dao Chi Wan and Matau Chung some from Canton Road just couldn't make it and the initial appliances were on their own for quite some time at Coatwell Road the tragedy was repeated Part of the steep hillside above Coatwell Court Apartments had given way and the landslide slammed into the building. Chief Fire Officer Fred Jackson was helping to coordinate rescue work. Well, it appears to have started from the slip of a building up in Posan Road onto a further building in Coatwell Road, which ultimately slid onto the 12-storey building which collapsed down into Babington Path. It's hitting a 14-storey building on the way. But it's almost exactly 7 o'clock now. What's the position as far as uh, survivors are concerned? Well, at the moment, I think our survivor list is uh, about 19. There have been 25 persons removed from the scene, of whom I do believe 19 are still alive. There was a report, I think, that was coming through in the teleprinter a few, um, few hours ago, saying that you heard people shouting inside, but you couldn't actually get at them yet. Uh, yes, we, well, we heard one or two. In the main, we removed 
or got out, all those we could hear, except one small girl we heard crying, but we couldn't get to her at all. The difficulties at Coatwell Road were made worse by the threat of more landslides after 25 inches of rain. Well, in the main, we've got to get the lighting organised, and of course a lot of our lighting was in use over in Kunton at the fall over on the Kunton side. But of course, we've got to move very, very warily with large amounts of water and mud still running down the sides. Uh, the crisscross of reinforcing bars that got to be got under or cut. And we've got to be most careful that we didn't bring other parts of the floor stuff, which are very hefty, down on top of the rescuers. Well, indeed, how dangerous is it now for you? Uh, it's still quite dangerous working there. In fact, the part of the uh, beams, the floor beams, are hung on the side of the 14-storey building. It's still rather hazardous. And so everything is having to be shored, dug under or lifted in order to search and look for other possible survivors. How many do you think there might be? Well, survivors, we're hoping there'll be a few at least. But of course, there'll be, uh, there will be quite a lot of people, I think, still left in the building. Dead? Well, uh, at this stage, you'll no doubt be some of them dead. There's no doubt about that. Actor, director, philosopher and brilliant exponent of the martial arts, Bruce Lee, was making great gains in Hollywood. The Way of the Dragon, which came out in 1972, was a movie in which he had a starring role, wrote the screenplay and also directed. It was to be an incredible career, short-lived, as he would die suddenly the following year. The Way of the Dragon starred Lee, Chuck Norris and other martial arts greats with much of the fight action taking place in the Colosseum in Rome. There was an acting role called The Thug, played by a Hong Kong blonde Swedish heartthrob of the time, Anders Nelson, who had been a 60s sensation with his band The Continentals and was a friend of Bruce's brother, then fellow singer Robert Lee. In 1973, Anders would be a founder of another Hong Kong band, Ming, but in 1972, in between singing, he was finished off by Bruce Lee in a matter of seconds. Around this time, Radio Hong Kong's Ted Thomas interviewed Bruce Lee, including about the movie The Big Boss, which had come out the previous year. How much of your screen personality is really you? I mean, you teach martial arts, so you're obviously very good at it. But of course, teachers are not always the best exponents or practitioners. Right. Are you able to take care of yourself, would you say? I will answer it, first of all, with a joke, if you don't mind. Oftentimes people come up and say, hey Bruce, are you really that good? I said, well, if I tell you I'm good, probably you will say I'm boasting. But if I tell you I'm no good, you know one line. <laughs> but, all right, going back to be truthful with you. Let's just put it this way. I have no fear of opponent in front of me. But I'm very self-sufficient they do not bother me. And that should I fight, should I do anything, I have made up my mind, and that's it, baby. You better kill me before. Bruce, in The Big Boss, you play a man who's very slow to anger. Yes. He's shy, diffident. Uh, you even stay out of fights in the early scenes because of a promise you made to your mother. Yes. Um, is that a little bit like you, or is this just a screen personality? Uh, this is definitely a screen personality, because uh, as a person, one thing that I have definitely learned, and, and my life, it seems like, is a, is a 
It's a, it's a life of self-examination and self-peeling of myself bit by bit, day by day, is that I do have a bad temper, <laughs> a violent temper, in fact. <laughs> uh, so that is definitely, I mean, some people that I am portraying, you know, not Bruce Lee as he is. Bruce Lee being interviewed by Ted Thomas there. 1972 was a seriously busy year for movies here. And here are a few titles, though I think some have had some colourful translations. Here we go. Five Fingers of Death, Bandits from Shantung, Action Taekwondo, The Big Fight, Crimes to be Paid, The Death Duel, The Doomsday Machine, The Casino, The Dark Alley, Delightful Forest, Furious Slaughter, Intrigue in Nylons, Impetuous Fire, and The Bride from Hell. 1972 was the year Richard Nixon won a landslide victory in the US election and was also the year that he would establish ties with China. This was the week that changed the world. As what we have said in that communique is not nearly as important as what we will do in the years ahead to build a bridge across 16,000 miles and 22 years of hostility which have divided us in the past. And what we have said today is that we shall build that bridge. President Richard Nixon speaking at Shanghai a week after having paid his historic visit to Peking, where he exulted over the joint communique. The bridge building began even before that trip, of course, but the girders really began to close with the walk down the ramp of Air Force One in Peking, described by Don Fulson. There they are, the President and Mrs. Nixon. Mr. Nixon clapping his hands just briefly to himself, now shaking hands with the Premier of China, Zhou Enlai, the 74-year-old number two man in the People's Republic of China. Within hours of the formal greeting at the airport, Mr. Nixon held his first talk with Chairman Mao. They were to meet again, but the key work was done in a series of meetings between the President and Premier Zhao Enlai, and between Secretary of State Mr. Rogers and his Chinese counterpart. Dr. Henry Kissinger's preview of the joint communique was read to newsmen by News Secretary Ron Ziegler. There are essential differences between China and the United States in their social systems and foreign policies. However, the two sides agree that countries, regardless of their social systems, should conduct their relations on the principles of respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity of all states. Even today, the full import of the China visit is not clear, but contacts have been expanded. Visits exchanged and American congressmen have gone to China, something that would have been unthinkable just a few years back. American aeroplanes and American wheat are headed for China, but only the years ahead will tell what the China visit means. Back locally, it was the end of the Mongkok Ferry Pier as the area became part of the West Kowloon Reclamation. In 1972, Hong Kong's toy industry was huge and it was the start of Swire Properties. It was also the year that the small house policy was introduced. The small house policy allows an indigenous male villager who's 18 years old and is descended through the male line from a resident in 1898 of a recognised village in the New Territories, an entitlement to one concessionary grant during his lifetime to build one house. 
As villages were taken over to be redeveloped into new towns such as later Sha Tin and Chunwan, the colonial administration wanted to give a sweetener to the villagers who needed to move to other areas. It was also a way to improve the quality of housing. The small house policy was an interesting concept that still causes controversy today. In 1972, singer Frances Yip was enjoying huge success. She would later be known for singing a number of the theme songs for TVB TV series in the 80s and 90s. But back in 1972, she released an LP of her greatest hits. The following year, she launched another album called Discovery, which was done for Cathay Pacific, where Frances Yip sang in nine languages to represent the nine major destinations for the airline. Then, now to Britain's entry into the common market, an event that has only just taken place, but one which has taxed Hong Kong's traders and businessmen over the past 12 months. Visiting Hong Kong earlier in 1972, the Foreign Secretary Sir Alec Douglas Hume assured the colony it would stand to benefit by Britain's entry into the EEC. In the negotiations for entry, we kept in the closest touch with the Hong Kong government and fought hard for Hong Kong's interests. And when we are members of the community, full members, we will do the same. I hope that over the years, association with this. The largest trading group in the world. At present, it conducts 41% of the total trade of the world. Will bring rewarding prizes to Hong Kong. Sir Alex's visit came soon after Britain had reimposed quotas and introduced a tariff on Hong Kong cotton textiles entering the UK. He explained why it had been necessary for such a sudden move and so little warning. We had overwhelming evidence. That the British market could be flooded by from places other than Hong Kong, not from Hong Kong, but other than Hong Kong, and therefore not only the present situation disturbed uh, very much to our disadvantage, but the future situation also disturbed, because the long-term problem, and I think the greatest interest, for example, for Hong Kong, is that we should get the alignment of quotas right in relation to. Our entry into the common market, and therefore the consequences、uh, on Hong Kong in the long term.、Uh, but I, so I regret the present situation and the difficulty that was caused. But I think the answer to your question, why so quickly, was that it became very clear quite quickly uh, that uh, big orders were being placed, uh, and uh, I say not from Hong Kong, from other territories, which would have upset the market completely and might have had very serious repercussions on the long-term arrangement of. The enlarged common market includes Ireland, Denmark, and, of course, most significantly, Britain. The new members to the market are expected to go through a period of uncertainty as they adapt to new trading laws, tax structures, and get used to dealing with old neighbours on a new basis. On the decision for Britain to go in, Prime Minister Heath had this to say. We have come together in unity over a large part of Europe after centuries, after 
that this meeting of the nine heads of government has itself been remarkable for that fact, and the rest of the world recognises it. In 1972, Hong Kong had a bit of financial bother. And when you listen to this, bear in mind that the Hong Kong dollar would not be pegged to the US dollar until 11 years later, in 1983. It was a busy year for international money traders in 1972. In early May, the US dollar was devalued. That meant anyone wanting to buy gold in dollars had to pay $38 instead of 35 The tough economic measures taken by America did strengthen the dollar, and most European currencies fell into line behind it. All except sterling, that is. It was on June the 23rd that the pound sterling was allowed to float. And because the Hong Kong dollar is so closely tied to sterling, plus the question of our sterling reserves held in Britain, Hong Kong was forced to act independently. The financial secretary, Mr Philip Haddon Cave, who made several visits to Britain in 1972, announced on the 6th of July that a fixed rate had been established between the Hong Kong dollar and the US dollar. In effect, this meant a revaluation of the Hong Kong dollar against sterling of approximately 5%. The fact that we felt able to make such a move as this is a measure of the strength of the Hong Kong dollar and of the resilience of the Hong Kong economy. I feel confident that we've chosen, that the rate we've chosen in relation to the US dollar is the right one in our circumstances. And I feel confident that it can be maintained. The effect, of course, will be to stabilize the prices of our imports and hence our cost of living. But at the same time, it will enable us to maintain the competitiveness of our exports, on which, of course, our economy is so dependent. But Hong Kong's troubles were not over. Questions were starting to be asked about Hong Kong's sterling reserves in Britain and how they would be affected by the floating of the pound and the newly announced link with the US dollar. Our official external reserves are, are largely held in sterling and their, their US dollar value is guaranteed by the, by the sterling guarantee agreement we have with the United Kingdom. Uh, that guarantee agreement did never envisaged a floating situation. It never envisaged, envisaged any situation other than a change from one parity to another, in which case the US dollar value of, of our reserves would have been restored. There are a number of technical difficulties connected with a floating sterling in the context uh, of the guarantee arrangement, and these we must explore with the British government. Together with, of course, the whole future of the sterling guarantee agreement, now that September 1973 is approaching. In fact, I announced in Legislative Council in May that the British government uh, was of the view that the future of the sterling guarantee agreements should be discussed well before September 73 with a view to, to seeing whether or not they should be either renewed or replaced with other agreements. However, the colony was forced to take a loss, and although the position was changing constantly, the financial secretary reported to the Legislative Council in mid-December. Sir, the value of the sterling assets held by the Hong Kong government, including those owned, including those bank-owned assets guaranteed under the Exchange Fund Guarantee Scheme, at the time of the float was, as I have just said, approximately 900 million pounds. In Hong Kong dollar terms, the whole of the loss resulting from this complicated and quite unforeseen sequence of events following the decline in the value of sterling from US dollars 2.6057 to 240 
and amounting to approximately 890 million Hong Kong dollars, falls on public funds. Mr. Haddencave stressed that despite the highly unusual monetary year, confidence in the Hong Kong dollar remains unimpaired. Locally, it was also the year of Lapsap Chung, what was supposed to be a repulsive green lizard-like creature who dropped litter, spat and smoked, and thus endeared himself to the Hong Kong public, and still is remembered in popular culture today. He was part of the Clean Hong Kong campaign, led by then-Governor Murray McLehose. The sound on this following clip is not that great, unfortunately, but is of James Hawthorne, who became Director of Broadcasting that year, interviewing Governor McLehose, and it was for a new programme called Viewpoint, and shows McLehose out and about promoting the new policy. Good evening. Tomorrow we begin the most intensive stage of the Clean Hong Kong campaign. Of course, there have been campaigns of various kinds in Hong Kong before, but one gets the impression that this one is very special. Government is committed to it, and the governor himself is committed to it. Now, a few days ago, Sir Murray McLehose visited the battlefield, and amid the noise and tumult of the city streets, he spoke to James Hawthorne. It's a very an intensive litter campaign is just about to begin. Do you think we'll be able to clean up Hong Kong in a month? Well, the point is, we're going to make Hong Kong clean. I don't know whether it's going to take 30 days or more, but I don't really think this is the point. Now, we hope to break the back of this problem in November. And I hope we'll have done a very good job by the end of it. Veteran singer Rosalie Carpio was also employed to help Hong Kong clean up. Well, I had the great pleasure of performing for Lapsap Chung in the <laughs> Clean the Beach campaign, and we did different beaches every Sunday. And uh, I remember singing at Deepwater Bay, and I think we must have been at Repulse Bay, that's more than sure, and some other beaches. I mean, there was a whole list of beaches we did. What was the idea that you encouraged people to clean up at the beach, or yes, just enter yes, to yeah. clean to clean the beach and put your rubbish? Don't be a lapsap chung. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was Hong Kong in those days really messy? Yes, very dirty. Yeah, the streets. Everybody used to complain about it. So it was a big, big thing to clean up Hong Kong. Yes, very much so. Weren't there yeah, any the, bins, or were people just throwing stuff on the ground? Or people were messy, and yeah, just the, the roads and the footpaths, everything were dirty. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think that the, the impact of this little green animal was then? Oh, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> a good impact on because we were, we were, you know, thinking of Lapsap Up Chung years later, you know. It, it still stuck in the brain. So, yes, no, it was very effective. So when you were on the beach, did you have a little stage there or how, how did you yes, do it? Yes, yeah, they set up a proper stage and the band and everything, full a full show. Yeah, in the hour, in the daytime, or around lunchtime, something like that. Oh, on the weekends or on weekdays? Or? Yes, on the weekend. Right. But Sunday, Sunday afternoon would have been, definitely, because we were working otherwise, yeah. Oh, of course, yeah, you'd have been working at night. Yes, yeah. And what sort of numbers did you sing? Uh, one song comes to mind, which was so popular those days, was Beautiful Sunday, so that means we were actually working on a Sunday. Can you give me a yeah. bit? Yeah. Ha! Ha, ha, beautiful Sunday. This is my, my, my beautiful day. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Super, it's that's really it. popular. It yes. was a huge hit. 
And it's as I say, Daniel Boone is is the the same year. Yes, yeah, nineteen seventy two. So there you go. behind Lapsap Chung. That was artist and then Government Information Services creative director, Arthur Hacker. Lapsap Chung had large red dots, a pointy tail, a big snout, and told Hong Kongers to keep Hong Kong clean. Arthur Hacker was born in 1932 and came to Hong Kong in 1967. His artistry often involved curly cues as he depicted Wan Chai bar girls and Hong Kong life in a series of books on Hong Kong. But while he was working at GIS, he also produced anti-smoking and anti-drugs posters and some of his art is now exhibited at the M-Plus Museum. Lapsap Chung became a firm children's favourite and might be gradually what Arthur Hacker is best known for. He died here at the age of 81 in 2013. Here's the Lapsap Chung song that also was a part of the campaign that went on radio, on the television, in newspapers, on beaches and was actually successful in making Hong Kong a more hygienic and tidy city. This jingle was written by Derek Shepherd, Harvey Platt and Noel Quinlan who also produced it.
1972 saw the linking of Hong Kong Island and Kowloon with the completion and opening of the Cross Harbour Tunnel. The incredible engineering feat of building the tunnel sections and then sinking them into place resulted in a mile-long tunnel that has had a marked effect on the colony's transport pattern. Head of the tunnel company is Mr John Marden. In the annals of Hong Kong's history, the opening of the Cross Harbour Tunnel will be regarded as an important milestone in our development and one which was indicative of the faith and confidence of those who live in Hong Kong had in the future. The Cross Harbour Tunnel was officially opened by the Governor Sir Murray Maclehose in a ceremony midpoint between Hong Kong and Kowloon. Praising the tunnel company for its achievement, Sir Murray said, There are many other problems in Hong Kong just as urgent, just as large, just as exciting, just as apparently insoluble as this one once seemed. We should surely take heart from this achievement to believe that if this can be done, so too can many other things. It is with this thought that I have the greatest pleasure in declaring this tunnel open. From underground to the skies above, Apollo 16 had to be waved off its lunar landing on the scheduled pass because of a malfunction. That ended happily as a successful burn on the next orbit put men on the moon again. The final mission, Apollo 17, was launched in December, probably the last time man will set foot on the moon this 20th century. Only the Skylab and the space shuttle projects remain on the manned mission list for the immediate future. Mariner probed more of Mars secrets in 1972, and Pioneer began the long journey to Jupiter. Eventually, it will become the first object to leave the solar system. The Olympics were plagued by controversy even before the Games began. There were questions on eligibility. Many African countries said they would return home if Rhodesia was allowed to compete, and there were bitter recriminations about the officiating. All this was forgotten when early on the morning of September the 5th, Palestinian guerrillas entered the Olympic village. The Palestinians demand uh, uh, the release of about 200 uh, prisoners, Arabic prisoners, held in Israel, and uh, hold as hostages 10 of the Israeli members of the Olympic team. Even then, the information being released by the German police was not wholly correct. Two Israelis had already been killed, and nine were being held hostage. Negotiations continued for their release. The Palestinians threatened to murder their hostages and then extended their deadline. Block 31 at the Munich Olympic Village also housed the team from Hong Kong, and manager Adi Salis walked straight up to the guerrilla leader to negotiate for the release of Hong Kong athletes he knew to be inside the building. And I approached him, I spoke to him, uh, uh, told him that there were still two men there and that I wanted to get them out and I hoped that he would let me do so. And he said, uh, that he didn't think there was anybody, but I said, well, perhaps if I were to speak to them in Cantonese, then they would come out of hiding. And uh, he agreed. And then he, he asked, I said, well, could I get in, could I go into the building? And he, he opened the door for me to go in, and immediately in the staircase there was a, a guard, a guerrilla guard, armed to the teeth. And so I stopped and spoke to him also. Then I went up the staircase with the guerrilla leader, and there was another guard. And finally, uh, after a third guard, I reached uh, the, uh, number 12. I pounded on the door and rang the bell and called out in Cantonese and Mr. Chai came out, opened the door and I told him to put on his coat and to leave immediately. 
Olympic Federation chairman, Mr. Avery Brundage, suspended the games as night fell. It was at night that the German authorities, agreeing to the guerrillas' demands, provided a bus and helicopters to take them and their Israeli hostages to waiting aircraft. But they landed not at the commercial airport, where three jets were to await the Palestinians, but at an ambush at a military airfield. Reporters were kept away. Shots were heard. Even when it was announced all the hostages were safe, more shooting was heard, and it was half past three the next morning when the grim details were released. At a news conference, a West German official gave the awful truth about the abortive ambush. In the process, the hostages were killed, and one policeman of the Munich City Police was also killed. A pilot of one of the helicopters is badly injured and is at present in the hospital of Halaking. Eleven Israelis died, along with five Arabs. Three of the terrorists were captured. Olympic chairman Avery Brundage declared the next day a day of mourning. The games must go on, and we must... And we must continue our efforts to keep them clean, pure, and honest. The Chopsticks were a female duo who were successful in Hong Kong from the late 1960s. This would be their last year performing together, before Sandra Lang and Amina split to pursue their solo careers. With great outfits and great voices, actually, the duo The Chopsticks released four LPs on the local Crown Records label between 1969 and 1972, singing English pop songs, but also songs in other languages. also saw the first parade to mark the Queen's birthday in eight years. Governor Maclehose was in his full governor regalia, including his plumed hat. He was known to have disliked wearing this formal attire as he felt awkward because he was so tall. Here's Radio Hong Kong's Geoffrey Weeks giving a live commentary which actually lasts a good 50 minutes of the Queen's birthday and the goings-on in 1972. You're tuned to Radio Hong Kong. It's 26 minutes past nine. 
the Queen's Birthday Parade. We take you over now to Geoffrey Weeks at the Polo Ground, Boundary Street. And here on a very warm, sunny, sticky morning, we have Her Majesty the Queen's Birthday Parade being held in Kowloon for the first time in eight years. And a great deal of attention it's attracted. Here on the polo ground, there are public stands erected around three sides of the ground and they are packed with spectators. The centre stand on the Nathan Road side, uh, mainly uh, invited guests, but the other two stands uh, filled with members of the public who've been pouring in here since very soon after 8 o'clock this morning when I arrived and there were many people here then. Sam Hoy had already been enjoying a successful singing career. He, along with Joe Jr., Danny Summer and any number of others, had commercial success. Sam Hoy also partnered up with his equally talented brother Michael to form a highly popular comedic duo. The Hoy Brothers show was a fun televised comedy show that ran for a couple of years around 1972 before both brothers pursued their acting careers as well as singing. And finally, in Chimsa Choi on Ashley Road is an Australian-style bar called Ned Kelly's Last Stand. And in December, it will celebrate its 50th birthday. It's been there since it opened in 1972. And apart from the recent music hiatus due to the COVID pandemic, live music at Ned Kelly's has been a nightly event. In 1972, it started off with bandleader Larry Allen. Then came Dennis James and his boogie-woogie piano. Then came Ken Bennett. And finally, Colin Aitchison with his China Coast Jasmine. To finish up, here's Ken Bennett with his version of I Want to Be Like You from Jungle Book. I'll eat your mannerisms. We'll be a set of twins. No one will know where the bad cop ends and orangutan begins. I won't feel it with my feet. Be just like the other men. I love some anarchy. Oh, won't be do upside down and wide like you. Oh, I won't do it. Talk like you. You've been do. So a bit of a mishmash from 1972, and I'm sure there was plenty more happening that year. I'm looking forward to finding out more about how the Cross Harbour Tunnel was laid under the harbour. What an impressive engineering feat. Thanks for listening, 
and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>